It's a pleasure to see you all. We'll be in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 38. Things happen in our lives that can change us permanently for good or ill. You think uh, maybe a cash windfall might be life-changing or an accident could be life-changing. Um, but one experience that we have can change our future outlook, our, our standing, or even our perspective, the way that we see other people. I'm always looking for examples in the Bible of these sorts of things. If I have an idea, I'm like, well, is there an example in Scripture? Because I'm a bit of a, a Bible nerd, I suppose. Um, but Mephibosheth is a great example of a guy who had these life-changing experiences. Here he is, a prince, and he, his, his nurse received word that his grandfather, King Saul, and his dad, Jonathan, had suddenly died on the battlefield. She panicked. He was a child. She dropped him. He was permanently lame in his feet from that point on. So he, he used to be this um, privileged prince, and then he became this lame outcast living in Lodabar. Lodabar was on the other side of the Jordan. It was, the, the word itself means without pasture. And it's a, it's a picture of, of just really trying to hide from, from the king. Because in those days, if you were the king and there was a, 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 someone who could possibly claim the throne, you would kill them or get rid of them in some way. So that would be, you would have a united kingdom. Um, so gone were all aspirations of the throne. There was no chance for real social advancement for this lame man. And years later, David, after becoming king, he said, is there anyone of Jonathan's family that I can do good to? Because we had a covenant that we would be good to each other's children. And so he inquired, and yeah, Mephibosheth, he lives in Lodabar. So he brought him over before the king. And he restored all of King Saul's lands to Mephibosheth. And he said, whenever we eat, there's a place at my table for you. So this is like winning the lottery plus. So not only does he live with the king, but he has love from the king and security and a future. And he says, if you ever need anything, it's right here. I am here for you. It's better than just getting cut a check. We'd just like the money maybe. <laughs> but he's like, you know, here you are. You're with me now. And so he stayed with him. So these life-changing events where he's lame in his feet, he's an outcast, and then he's brought back, and he's with the king as much as he wants. Whenever he wants to eat with the king, he can be at the king's table. And you think about us and what Jesus has done for us, that we were without pasture, we were outsiders, and God has brought us in, Jesus being our good shepherd, and he has given us life through his own death and resurrection. So the things David did for Mephibosheth, those are admirable. But the things Jesus does for people, they're transformational. We see that with people who were born blind that were able to see. People paralyzed and lame who were made to walk. Those who were demon-possessed, they were delivered. Even the dead were raised to life. And not everybody who was touched by Jesus or healed by Jesus miraculously was born again. They remained in their sins. But there were some, so some people's circumstances changed because Jesus touched them, but their heart wasn't changed. Those other people whose circumstances remained very much the same, yet they were changed on the inside, and they passed from death to life. 
I like when Mephibosheth was uh, given this uh, grace from King David. He said in 2 Samuel 9, 8, he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? He says, I'm a dead dog to you. Why would you even be kind to me? And how much kinder has God been to us? We don't deserve to be brought into his family. We don't deserve to have a seat at his table for us to be called the children of God. Glory to God for what he has done. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you for demonstrating your great love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And thank you for the transformational work you do in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that we who were dead in sins can be raised to life. We who Our bodies will someday go the way of the earth, but you will raise us up to eternal glory if we will repent and be born again through faith in Jesus. And just thank you, Lord, that we have such a hope that this world cannot steal away from us, that we can't lose or, or be forgotten because you have us and you have promised and you will be faithful to perform. So we glorify you today, Lord. We praise you and we worship you. And we ask that you would fill us with your spirit to understand what you're saying to each one of us, that our eyes would be opened, that there would be light instead of darkness. There would be clarity where there's perhaps confusion or doubt and that you would lead us forward, Lord, in your ways. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Earlier in this chapter, we read how the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples as they met 120 people praying in one accord and um, on the day of Pentecost, and they miraculously spoke in tongues that they didn't previously know, the wondrous works of God. And there were all these, it says, devout Jews from every nation under heaven. They had gathered for the feast, and they hear this sound like a rushing mighty wind, and they go and, and then they hear people speaking in their own language, in their dialects, and they're Galileans. So they're like, how is this possible? And then Peter uh, explains, hey guys, we're not drunk like some of you are su- suggesting. Um, this is what God promised through the prophet Joel and in other places that he would send his Holy Spirit to fill us. What you're seeing is a manifestation of that. And he said, guys, you are guilty of crucifying the Messiah, the one that God sent to be the Savior. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? His, the word of God cut them to the heart, and he says, repent and be baptized. And it says 3,000 people received that um, baptism. And just, I guess, for background, Acts 2, 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So repentance, we emphasized that a bit last week. It's that necessary step toward forgiveness and salvation. That's what remission of sins means. It means to be wiped clean, forgiven of that debt. And the promise of the Holy Spirit that we can be regenerated, born again through faith in Christ. And then he urges these new believers to be baptized. And that's baptism in water. If we confess our need to be born again, we realize we're a sinner and we need forgiveness and that we need to be born again and we're willing to submit to that spiritually, well, then we ought to submit to being baptized in water. 
And that's something the Lord has uh, demonstrated for us. Jesus gave our the example, and he also commanded that we should be baptized. So it's that picture of being raised from death to life, the old man dying, being crucified with Christ, and being raised from the dead into newness of life. And so if, you, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian and have not been baptized in water, why not? You should be. It's something that God has commanded, and uh, it's an act of obedience to him. But this wasn't the end of the message. Verse 40, it says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. The generation Peter was speaking about was under condemnation from God because of the rejection and the murder of Jesus Christ. And he describes them as a perverse generation. They demanded signs when they should have believed the scriptures. They refused the wisdom of Jesus. They ignored the miracles and signs and wonders that he did. So there's this great demonstration of power and God's authority through Jesus Christ. And yet the people refused to hear and they doubted him and they they sought to entrap him in his words and sought for ways to, to kill him. The word perverse, it means warped or crooked. It means literally turned aside, distorted from the right, obstinate in the wrong, disposed to be contrary and stubborn. That sounds a lot like uh, me, just putting it right out there. Disposed to be contrary, obstinate in the wrong, stubborn. That's people, right? That, that perverse generation didn't like pass away. It wasn't like just one generation that was under condemnation. No, we all are because all have sinned. We all have this bent in us that's distorted. It's crooked. It's not straight like God's way. It's not upright as his way is. It's our own way. And we, we prefer that way. We live in the midst of a perverse generation, a generation that is rushing to ruin. Our society today could be compared to a tragic stampede away from God. You know, you hear these horrible stories of this club and there's a fire and people are pressing to get to the exit, but it's over full and people are trampled and smoke inhalation. Horrible situation. A a, a tremendous tragedy. And yet it's like God is on the stage and he's saying, come to me, I will give you rest. Repent and turn from your wickedness. And people are like, I'll have none of that. And they rush to the exit and to their destruction. And in finding that exit away from God, they are destroying themselves. People think they know better than God. But a majority cannot overrule God's morality. We are living in this generation that believes its own way is the best way. Now, repentance and trusting in Jesus, that's the only way we can be saved. That's the only way that we can be forgiven. Which Who among us can wash their hands clean of sin? Who here can wash their heart from wickedness before a holy God? I cannot. None of us can. Only the blood of Jesus can wash us clean. And we're under condemnation until we repent. And so he emphasizes the people's need for salvation. He's like, guys, be saved from this generation. It's a generation that's opposed to God. It's a generation that hates God. Look what they did to Jesus. And the people responded to that. Gladly, it says in verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. 
And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So about 3,000 people heard the word, they gladly received it, and were baptized. This was one of the works that the Holy Spirit does. In John 16, 8-11, Jesus had said, And when He, the Holy Spirit, has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in Me, of righteousness because I go to My Father and you see Me no more, of judgment because the ruler of the world is judged. That's, those are the works of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just for that generation. He still does those things now. He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The Bible says the soul that sins will surely die in Ezekiel 18.20. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Now, you've probably figured out and you're convinced that someday your body is going to die. But nobody's actually told you this. Yet you know it's to be, it's the case. Uh, you haven't signed a permission form or filled out a waiver. You haven't had a medical practitioner or a government official who's knocked on your door and said, I'm sorry to break this news to you, but you're going to die someday and you need to make some preparations for the future. No one, no one has ever done that. How would you respond if someone did? I, I don't know. That'd be an interesting conversation. Usually, we don't talk about death until it happens. We don't really prepare for it. We don't really think about it quite often. But the Holy Spirit, he speaks on these subjects. He says, you have an issue with sin. And the soul that sins will surely die. He speaks of God's perfect righteousness. He gives us the standard by which we're to measure our lives and say, do I measure up? You know, God, this is his standard, and my standard, my own stubborn way, it's not God's way. And future judgment, that's something the Holy Spirit hits home. Like, you know what, there is a life after this life. And only those who are convinced of that will choose to repent and follow Jesus, because it's the only way of salvation. And he is worthy to be followed and worshipped. I am one of those who have gladly received that word because i know that i am not going this body is not going to live forever it tells me all the time this body is falling apart at times and i am glad to spend eternity with my savior in heaven who wants me to be with him so after these new believers they repented they were baptized they join the fold. So 120 followers of Jesus becomes 3,120 followers of Jesus. No longer bound by the traditions of the law or the traditions of men, they entered a new covenant through the gospel. Gospel means good news. It gives us the bad news first. It says that you're a sinner and are facing eternal judgment in hell. But the good news is God has made a provision for you to be saved if you will repent and trust in him. This week I read in 1 Corinthians 1, if you want to turn there, it's cool, 1 Corinthians 1, 21. It's a really interesting message to consider, the way that God has chosen for people to receive eternal life. 
Because there's something in us, just like these believers, these devout Jews, right? The fact that they came from every nation under heaven to go to Jerusalem in obedience to God shows that they had a heart for God. And when they heard about their guilt before him and and that they had rejected the Christ, they said, what shall we do? What do we have to do? How can I make this right? And when you've when you've done something wrong or you've done something that you're seeing the consequences of it, and you're like, man, what can I do to change this? Right? Have you ever been there? What, what do I do now? How do I how do I go from here? There's something in us that wants to try to do something, to try to earn favor again with God. But God, through the foolishness of the preaching and the message, and sometimes the preacher, God gets his word through. That's the way he's chosen to do it. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The gospel isn't foolish, but to men it seems foolish that through Christ dying 2,000 years ago, if I turn from sin and I place my faith in him, I will have eternal life. I mean, this may be a familiar thought to you, but can you imagine hearing that for the first time? and be like, what? (laughs) How does that have any bearing on me today? But that's the wisdom of God. God's revealed himself through in creation. He's revealed himself through his word, in the prophets, in the law, and through Christ. And yet, there are some who will gladly receive and others who will refuse it. It will be a stumbling block to them. Many see God as a crutch for the weak-minded, see the Bible as fairy tales, but it's the God-honest truth. It is life. It is life and food for our souls. The Holy Spirit, he's able to open the eyes of those willing to see that he is, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. When some people have made a decision for Christ, there can be little discernible change in their life. But it was not true for these believers. They radically changed. Because not only did they, remember they were from every nation under heaven, they stayed in Jerusalem. They began to sell their stuff and give to people in need in their group. And it says in verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and prayers. These hallmarks of the early church, they were more than organized activities. It wasn't like Peter and John said, all right, let's just, we got to, there's all these people, we should probably do something. Uh, This was, these were things that um, marked their lives. It was evidence of a spirit-empowered life. These are the results of someone who's born again. You'll not only have a desire to do these things, you will need to do these things. And truly we do. The word steadfastly, it says they didn't just start doing them and kind of tapered off. They kept doing them. And this word in the Greek, it conveys the attitude with which they did it. It says to be earnest towards, 
to persevere, to constantly be diligent, to attend with great care all the exercises. So instead of, you know, stubborn, your own way, now they are diligent toward and looking toward how can we live? How should we act? And they, they were just all united in this one thing. It was through the Spirit that they were able to do this. So we'll go through each one. The doctrine. Doctrine means instruction and teaching. The apostles, they, they taught the word of God, so they preached. And at no point did they master the scriptures and say, okay, now that I know, I can lay those aside and move on to deeper things. They, they continued steadfastly, needing to be instructed and taught. So there were, they were constantly learning, constantly growing. And that's what we need too. Just like, um, a newborn, for instance, they have that reflex when they're first born to, to eat. So if you brush their cheek, they'll start looking for food, right? Well, in the same way, when a new believer, when someone's born again, they will have a hunger for the Word of God. They will have this reflex to feed on the Word of God. And Jesus is food for us. His Word is food for our souls. And that's something that is a supernatural evidence that there is a change that's happened inside. We have a hearty appetite because now we're alive. We used to be dead. Dead people don't have an appetite. Now that we're made alive, we have a ravenous appetite for the word and we continue steadfastly in that. The second one, fellowship, koinonia. It means participation, communication, and contribution. So the focus is primarily on giving, not on receiving. It's contributing something. As fellow adopted children of Jesus, we have much more in common through Christ than ethnicity, earthly family ties, social status, musical taste, hobbies. What we have in Christ, who we are in Christ, transcends every earthly bond which will break someday. We have this eternal bond through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who lives within us, that now that we're followers of Christ, we this is who we are. The God who does not, who has never changed, yesterday, today, or forever, he's united us as one in himself. He's grafted us into the body of Christ. And our identity is found in him. In breaking of bread, the, er- the early church made it a common practice to receive the Lord's Supper in obedience to him. We'll read later that they went from house to house breaking bread. So this means eating and just having a meal, but it also means remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. Wine and bread were served nearly at every meal in those days. It was very common to have the elements of communion right there on the table at every meal. You would have them at hand. You guys ever been to a wedding where it's a bit tacky, but someone, I don't know where this tradition started, someone starts clinking a glass? Ting, 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 ting. What does that mean? That means that the bride and groom are supposed to kiss, much to the chagrin or delight of the viewers. It's a bit creepy. (laughs) So hopefully I didn't plant a seed that you'll use later, but... So at a wedding meal, there's a little tradition that's been, you kind of almost expect that. When it happens, you're like, oh, it's happening. Someone clinked the glass, and you look at the bride and groom. Are they going to do it? Oh, they don't care. You know, they're not going to do it. After the tenth time, it gets a little old. 
But they associated the times when they ate together with remembering what Jesus had did done on the cross. So it wasn't some sort of formalized ritual that they had set aside. We're like, okay, now it's time for... The... Remember, they had had the Passover meal and Jesus just took the elements that were on the table and they shared them together. And he says, this is going to proclaim my death until I come. So it's just very natural. They were just gathering for a meal. They were, hey, we're eating to sustain our bodies. Let's remember what Jesus has done for our souls, that he has made us alive in Christ and remember his sacrifice. And it was just it was a constant thing for them, proclaiming what Jesus had did, remembering what he had done. Now, our receiving of communion is a bit different today because, number one, we don't all live together. That might be a good thing. I don't know. Uh, the elements of communion are not always at hand. And also, communion is for disciples of Jesus only. It's an exclusive thing. You're to receive communion if you're a Christian. So that's why when we have just guests over, it's typically not, you know, we know that they're not believers. It wouldn't be appropriate to do it at that time. But you never know. As the Lord leads. You say, you know what? We have this tradition in our family of remembering the Lord's death at every meal. Good on you. May the Lord guide you in this. So in prayers, it says, the church was birthed in prayer. Remember those 10 days between Christ's ascension, uh, his, his uh, excuse me, his, yeah, ascension and the day of Pentecost. There were 10 days where they spent praying together, seeking the Lord as one. Then the Holy Spirit came upon them. But they didn't move on from praying because they now had the Holy Spirit and now they had a connection to God they didn't have before. And so, okay, prayer is now unnecessary. We see in Jesus, after the Holy Spirit came upon him, that he continued to pray. Prayer marked his ministry early, late, sometimes all night. And we also see with the disciples. The Bible compares believers to sheep. Sheep instinctively move toward other sheep, or a perceived friend, someone who feeds them. Instinctively, they will do that. They'll move towards the shepherd. If there's a sheep that runs away from the shepherd, is there's a sheep that is all by itself and isolated, not seeking the company of the others, something may be wrong with that sheep. And so the shepherd's clued into that, and he'll go and check out that sheep. Now, as believers, because Jesus is our good shepherd in times of trouble and just every day, our tendency as children of God will be to draw near to him and to others, especially in times of difficulty. We'll seek him out. We will look for him. We will go to him, and we'll do that through prayer primarily. So it's natural for us as children of God to seek God, just like a kid who's lost at the park He's looking for mom and dad. He's shouting, trying to find them because he's feeling un uneasy. They're not around. He doesn't know where they are. And in the same way, we who are in Christ, we, especially in those times of feeling alone or, or frightened, we look to him. So this desire to be instructed, a willingness to be instructed, to fellowship with other believers, contributing to the body, to share meals and receive communion together, and by praying, it's a good picture of this, a spiritual, healthy, Christ-centered life and church. 
These are points of emphasis in ministry, but the fact is where there are genuine believers, these things will happen. It wasn't an organized thing that, oh, this is the formula for making a church. They were born again, and these are the things that they did. And if I'm born again, these are the things that should also mark my life and yours. We have that reflex that the Holy Spirit gives us. It's almost an instinct, a desire that we did not possess before. Before Christ, I, I doubt any of us would spend our Sunday mornings in this fashion. If we just look around at the world, we see that people are doing a whole lot of other things, or our Friday nights, or Wednesday nights practicing, or other things that people do. When you say, let's get together and pray, you're like, what? Pray? Why? To who? What's the point? Like, you just don't get it. But you come to Christ, and you realize that it's a lifeline to God, and we need that. Verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. The wonders and signs done through the speaking of tongues did not end on the day of Pentecost. We see that many wonders and signs were done through the Holy Spirit, uh, which caused people to fear. This means to be alarmed or frightened. If you ever see something that you cannot understand, it can be a bit frightening. Perhaps you've seen some prank videos that are very well done where there's been a little planning and there's these unsuspecting patrons that come into a cafe and they've rigged it so that there's things moving that they're like, whoa, whoa, how is that person flying through the air? How is that table just flipping over by itself? Um, those books opening up and they get like, whoa, 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 what's doing that, right? A little unnerving. Has that ever happened to you? You've been a bit unnerved because you, you just heard a sound. And you're like, where did that come from? You just don't know. What, what could possibly have made that sound? And you could start just imagining things, right? In the book of Acts, we read about people being miraculously healed. Demons being cast out. People being struck blind. The doors of the prison door just swinging open by themselves. Uh, people raised from the dead. A man, he disappears, and he shows up 20, 30 miles away in an instant. Like, well, how does that happen? And if you don't believe in God, those are some real difficult questions to answer. How does that happen? But fear can cause people to take positive action. If you turn to Acts 19, 13 through 18, we read of a situation that God used and there's really no, I guess, no miracle here per se. But look at the response of the people because they feared. Acts 19, 13 through 18. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Seba a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. People's eyes were open to the power 
well, the spiritual power that was in this man who he knew things, that one man was able to overpower seven of them, and they were powerless to do anything against him. It says these people had believed, but they were dabbling in the occult. They had their objects and their books and their talismans. And it says they came and at great cost just gave them all to show, you know, Jesus Christ, he is the most powerful. And I can't be dabbling in this rubbish anymore. I I am loyal only to Jesus, the one who has the power to save. It says that people were afraid when they heard it. What? What happened? Those seven guys have been going around and they all got beat up and stripped naked and running out. Like, how does that happen? Um, they, they couldn't explain it, but they realized that Jesus was the only salvation for them. He was their only way of hope. And so at great cost, they showed allegiance to Jesus only. And sometimes it may be fear that will compel us to consider something we never thought of before. Verse 44, back in Acts chapter 2, says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. Jesus had told the disciples to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And it seems like the disciples decided to stay a bit longer. They didn't just go back to Galilee. They remained. They sold property, possessions, and they used proceeds to meet needs as they arose. This communal living, it was not mandated by Scripture. We don't see a command by Christ that this is the way they were to live. Uh, It wasn't in response to any direct command from God that's written for us. It's not a model for us to try to emulate, but it does show the change in the people, that they left their hometown or the place where they were from, and the things that they considered valuable or that had value, they sold to help others. These Jews from all over the world, they found a new home among other believers. And they joined in, and it's like every, they were all in. All their time, all their money, all their effort was to, uh, to glorify God as they were led by the Spirit. Um, some have compared this living arrangement to communism or socialism and say, see, this is how we should live. We should all, you know, do this. Um, This giving was not compulsory. Notice equal distribution between all people was not the aim. It was as they had need. Some people had greater needs than others, or a need would arise that they could meet. Uh, The apostles did not lord their authority. It wasn't uh, because communism seeks to place itself in the place of God. You don't need God now. You have the government. And you look to us now, and you trust us. That wasn't how the apostles, they did not lord their authority over others. They simply taught the word of God. They labored in, the, in doctrine and in prayer. They did not enrich themselves at the expense of others. We see historically the church gathers in many different contexts and ways, and it's thrived in different cultures, whether it's in, let's say, a communist regime. Or in Australia, the church has grown and been strong. To say that communal living is the way that we should live is to place a yoke upon men God did not lay. But let's let's understand, these people were led by the Spirit, and this was for them at that time. And let's not scoff at that as if it has no relevance or meaning. It's a historical narrative of how the church began, 
And by looking at it, we can glean many things. This church born out of prayer would immediately be persecuted and they gathered together and were strengthened in faith before God allowed them to be scattered and sent out back into the whole world. Remember that the Great Commission, God told them to go out, right? I will make you disciples. That will, you know, uh, uh, Acts chapter 1, excuse me, where you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, they were happy to stay in Jerusalem with their little group, but persecution sent them out. And they were prepared to go out because they had gathered together. They lived with each other. They really bonded in Christ, and they were strong in him. We see the people weren't throwing money around because you have a lame man in the very next chapter. He's expecting to receive alms from Peter and John, but he gave them something far better than money. Healing, something he never expected. He expected to receive something. He didn't expect that he was going to be healed of his affliction. Isn't that cool? He needed money and food to live. That's that's true from a human vantage point. And it says there, they divided among them all as anyone had need. Do you think the word need, it's become very subjective to us today? Because most of us are used to possessing more than we need. Would you agree with that? We're used to having some amount of reserves to feel a bit comfortable with our future, right? We say, well, how much do I have? How long will this last me? We always look at it with limitations. We realize it's a limited amount of money, a limited amount of space. How will I be providing for my future? And, and that confidence is misplaced when we do that. The giving and supplying of needs, it's a spiritual activity, even as speaking in tongues, even as uh, being instructed by the Lord and praying. These things, are, are in, we are enabled to do them through the Holy Spirit who prompts us to do things, to inquire about someone's well-being, to see how we can meet that need. There's a big social justice movement today which makes the meeting of a perceived physical need paramount and ignores spiritual needs. When we're led by the Spirit, we can meet both the physical and the spiritual need, and sometimes God just has that miraculous trump card where that that man was healed, as we'll see next week. God's generous. He makes his people generous too. Because haven't everything that we receive, isn't it from God? So we too know that he's going to supply my needs. I don't need to worry about my future. Because he, in having him, I have everything. As I was reading through this, I was struck with the fact that I need to learn, we need to learn, value, and offer the riches we have in Christ to others. I need to value the riches of God's kingdom above temporal and earthly things. I'm not saying that if someone says, uh, I'm hungry, just say, oh, eat and be filled, filled, I'll pray for you, and not try to meet the need in a practical way. But sometimes we can just throw money at a problem that only a spiritual work of God can fix. We can try to, with man's wisdom and our limited foresight, try to do what only God can do. 
I don't doubt that Jesus gave alms, but it's interesting, we never read of him doing it. There's no time where we read of Jesus actually giving someone money because the things he had were far greater than money. He didn't want people looking to him for money. But he gave people food. He healed people. He gave them wisdom. He gave, like, everything Jesus gave, money could not buy. And it's phenomenal that that was his currency. The miraculous, powerful, transcendent of human nature, love and grace. Everything that he gave was beyond money. It was beyond stuff. What I have to say might surprise you. People do not need money. It's treasure in heaven that's important. People do not need a home. Jesus said he had no place to lay his own head that he called his own. People do not need food. Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. People do not need water. Jesus said that if you seek him, he will give you living water, which will provide uh, water for your soul. People do not need good health because God's grace is sufficient for us. Now, it's true that our bodies need many things to live, but recognize that everything we need is found in Jesus Christ. He will supply our need in real time. You may not have the reserves, you may not feel confident in your what you possess, but know God is able to give you everything that pertains to life and godliness. So I just need God to keep changing my mind, to be thinking like this, to allow the miraculous and eternal to come into this temporal existence that we have together. Don't you want that? To know God in that way, to rely upon him in such a fashion. If you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 37, 21 through 26, there's this great contrast here between those who do not know the Lord, those who are wicked, they're still in sin, and the righteous, those who know God. Psalm 37, 21 through 26. It says, The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not utterly be cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. We've all been young. Some of us are getting older, right? But can't you agree with this? Like that matches my experience. I can say this is true. Those who know the Lord, God has supplied their needs in every possible way, in in miraculous ways. The wicked's borrowing does not repay. It says the righteous shows mercy and gives. Just giving. That marks the life of a righteous person, the one who fears the Lord. God will not forsake his people. 
God will not forsake us, even if our faith is small. Praise him. He is glorious. God upholds us with his hand. We can't even stand except he help us. It says, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. We all fall, but God won't let us to be, won't allow us to be utterly cast down. He will uphold us, and he knows we're going to fall even before we fall, and he continues to love and supply our needs. That's the grace of God. Acts 2, 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Following Jesus was marked with joy, gladness, unity. Daily they gathered in the temple. They worshiped the Lord. They broke bread from house to house. It says, with simplicity of heart. That word simplicity in the King James is singleness, so they were united. It just dovetails so perfectly with 120 as they in one accord prayed. This is such an act of God, how the church grew. Can you imagine you have 120 people in one accord and you inject 3,000 other people from everywhere under heaven together? How are they going to get along? Hmm. Interesting. You put one or two people that are a little, you know, wanting their own way and things become really difficult. But there's now 3,120 people and they're still marked by the same unity and love and grace toward one another where they're all one from house to house. It doesn't matter where they are. They're not, they're no, there's no cliques here. They're, they're all one in Christ. It's just, I'm like, wow, that blows my mind. The unity continued. It wasn't like, well, we're part of the first 120, and, you know, the apostles, they're pretty cool, and we've got our, you know, little groups, and we have seniority over you because we were here first, and none of that. They were all in Christ, under Christ, with Christ, and Christ with them. No one was an outsider because Jesus had invited each one of them to be there. The Holy Spirit had filled each one to contribute to the body, the part that God had for them. It says they praised God. They had favor with all the people. What grace God gave them. I think of Daniel and his companions, right? They're brought into Babylon and they have to go to prince school. To know how to be, you know, with the magicians and astrologers and the wise men, the soothsayers, and, and they have a different diet, and there's all these things placed upon them, yet they said, hey, we're going to stay true to God. And God helped them to be ten times wiser than all the others, and they had favor with King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a ruthless, strong ruler. And yet the church here in Jerusalem, it says they had favor with all the people. The people saw that they were for real. And they were giving, and they were loving, and they were glad. It wasn't like us against the world. And God added to the church daily those who were being saved. God established the church. Some have taken verses from this passage. They made it a prescriptive model for the church. They say, well, we want more people in our church. So if we do these four things or six things, well, certainly our church will grow. 
This is not a formula for church growth. God grows the church, right? I cannot add a person to the body of Christ, neither can you. It's not, we are not capable to do such a thing. Um, but God will use you to be someone who invites someone to Christ, who introduces someone to Christ, who shares uh, joyfully all you have in Christ, and uh, you can be fruitful in that way. 3,120 people fully committed to studying the word, united in faith, praising God as one, giving to those in need, remembering and proclaiming the death of Christ till he came, that would make an impact, wouldn't it? Even in a, in a difficult place like Jerusalem, where you have Judaism and those who were guilty of killing Jesus Christ, and the church thrived there. Because of this passage, people might make a connection between numbers of people in a church and the spiritual health of those people. Spiritual healthy people will be fruitful, and fruitfulness is not always in conversions or people who are coming to Christ. It's shown in different ways, right? We have the fruit of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, and God will make us fruitful to make disciples of Him. I'm not going to measure your spiritual health by the amount of people who attend this fellowship, and I trust you will not do the same concerning me. Like, oh, well, he must have a serious problem because there's not many people coming. Well, I guess it goes every way, doesn't it? Uh, how I use the scriptures, I say, am I, are these things being marked in my life? Am I willing to be taught by the word of God? Am I willing to have God instruct me and to use my brothers and sisters to do that? Am I, do I have a desire for fellowship? Do I want to pray with others? Am I willing to set aside prime time to do things which honor God? Am I being led by the Spirit in my giving? Am I seeking opportunities to share my faith and just to praise Him, to even go house to house, to break bread and remember what Jesus has done? Are these things evident in my life? Because if I'm a believer, if the Holy Spirit's in me, they will mark my life. Because it wasn't a church program. This was the Spirit moving in the people. I desire for us to all be filled with the Spirit of God, to love God, to love others, to make disciples of Jesus. And today we have that opportunity to remember and proclaim the death of Christ till he comes. He is coming, and he has uh, commanded us to remember. And, and we have such a privilege to meet around his table, where his, the elements represent him and what he's done for us. That he's the one whose body was broken. He's the one who allowed his blood to be shed so we could be washed clean. We were once without pasture, but we've been brought near. And he just says, come to me. He, he just draws us to himself. He bids us to come and to partake. Because even as baptism is that picture of us being dead, being crucified with Christ, and being raised to newness of life. So partaking of the, the bread and the cup, it shows what's happened inside of us. We've received through faith 
the work that Jesus did on the cross, we've been forgiven and washed clean by his blood. And we have a new life. And it's like, we eat so we'll have energy. May there's not I don't know how much calories is in each of those cups, but spiritually speaking, may God quicken us as we remember what Jesus has done. And we see others through his that lens of love where he has shown such love to us. Let's love one another. If I could please have the worship team come up, we will uh, say a prayer and then I'll invite you to come forward during that song. And if Jesus Christ is your Savior, please, uh, you are welcome and encouraged to come up and receive of the elements, and then I'll just pray over them together. Father in heaven, thank you that you are the one who has transformed us. You're the one who's made us born again. And I pray that we would be changed by you. We continue to be sanctified, even as you have sanctified us. You've set us apart for your glory, Lord. You have lavished us with great blessing and gifts. You have provided us everything that we need, physically and spiritually and eternally. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, cause us to to worship you in spirit and in truth with the unity that we see in this passage, that we would truly love you and we'd be filled with your spirit and that you'd do a work in our hearts that no, that no one could muster up in their flesh. Thank you that you are a, a God who does marvelous and miraculous things. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling, those who are perhaps under a weight of sin or guilt, I pray that you would apply that shed blood as we repent and we would be cleansed. We would know that we again have fellowship with you and with one another because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Lord, I ask that you would have your way in each heart, that you would be magnified in our midst, that you would be lifted up, you would be praised, and that there would be such a unity in us that people would know that we are believers and this is, this is the real Christ because you are working in us. We love you, Lord, and we are so grateful to be your children. In Jesus' name, amen.